Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, parents, and I suppose especially moms on this Mother's Day, know the preparation necessary before going out without the kids. Whether it's date night and a sitter for a dinner at your favorite restaurant, or a long weekend and grandma and grandpa are coming over to spend the time so you can get a, have an anniversary getaway or some other out-of-town experience. There are preparations that are necessary. The oversight that I already mentioned, and there are necessary instructions. Ginny needs her eardrops. Willie can stay up until 8 o'clock. Make sure the dog goes out. And then there are supplies. Those eardrops, they're in the downstairs bathroom. And then there's a list of snacks that are on and off the approved list. That's in the pantry. And all the while, one of you, and probably not mom, is tapping their foot, anxious to be out the door and on the way. But even after all that, there's prayer. Prayer that everything goes okay, and my cell number, in case it doesn't. Well, our gospel lesson this morning looks a lot like mom and dad going out without the kids for more than just an evening, but rather for an extended trip. Jesus prays to the Father, setting the same list of preparations in place, supervision, instruction, and supply. And while the disciples are allowed to overhear this prayer, these are not implicit commands, sanctified imperatives, if you will, for them to obey. For example, in verse 11, he prays, keep them in your name. He's asking the Father to do precisely that. He's not asking the disciples to somehow redouble their effort in allegiance. So respecting the privilege allowed to overhear Jesus' prayer, what does Jesus ask of the Father on the eve of his passion? Well, the prayer invokes, identifies the oversight, the supervision that the disciples and we will need going forward without the visible presence of the Savior. Holy Father, he prays, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Two things here. First, John, in his gospel, highlights the unity of Father and Son more than the other gospel writers. Recall the gentle rebuke earlier in the upper room. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This unity is not just identity, though. It is also action. When the Jews sought to kill him on the grounds of blasphemy, Jesus responded, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son does, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And second, the unity of his body, the church, is included in this prayer. When we survey the landscape of Christendom, we see the sad marks of disunity and error, which are the works of the evil one. As a congregation, we hold to the scripture as the only infallible authority in all matters of faith and life. We subscribe to the Book of Concord as a true and genuine exposition of the doctrines of the Bible, those taken from our Constitution. It is a matter of conscience and the necessity of faith, but it is not a platform from which to berate the confession of Jesus as Lord in any quarter. As Luther closed a letter to Martin Verser, the Swiss reformer, may the Lord Jesus enlighten us and bring us into perfect agreement. For this I plead, for this I weep, 
For this I sigh, farewell in him. The doctrinal divide between the two was never bridged. Holy Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one. So the Father, but also the Spirit, is included in Jesus' prayer, not by name in this section, but by the work that is done. Verse 14, I have given them your word. To receive the word is to receive the Spirit. To rightly handle the word is by the power, the guidance of the Spirit. And verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Again, third article, gifts. Who has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. All of this, of course, anticipates the sending of the Spirit next week as we celebrate Pentecost. So with the oversight in place, the necessary instructions reflect the circumstances that the apostles and we will face. Jesus is leaving. I am no longer in the world, he says. But more than that, the disciples are not just supposed to sit tight, to sit on their hands until he returns. As, I sent, as you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I am sending them into the world. And that is the problem, is the challenge. We are square pegs in a round world. Jesus knows this from his own reception. In John's accounts, it is the Jews. From chapter 2, when he drives out the money changers and the merchants, and the Jews demand, what sign do you show us for doing these things? To chapter 12, when the Father thunders from heaven and the crowds ask, who is this Son of Man? When everything goes south, it is the Jews. Chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested him. Verse 31. The Jews said to Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Chapter 19, verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. As the head, so also the church. Throughout the ages, even to our age, we face challenges on any number of fronts. Constant pressures to smooth off the square edges of our faith. Some of it's just life. Careers and catastrophes. Children and challenges, trophies and tragedies. The tyranny of the immediate is a large enough round hole to swallow any square peg if we simply allow it. But there are more sinister enemies that Jesus does name. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated you because they are not of the world. The word, Jesus' word, both enlightens and empowers us but it is the focal point of the conflict. From the serpents, did God really say in the garden, to the denial of the miraculous by the premise of rationality, miracles are by definition impossible, to the historical critical method in academia, the word is under constant attack. Yet Jesus promised, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The world hates the word, in part because the word is external. It comes to us. Truth, my truth, comes from within. And in our self-absorbed society, that's the only measure of truth. But thanks be to the Spirit and the word who convicts us of sin and then shows us God's promise. And then there's the evil one. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This one, 
This evil one comes equipped with the word. Recall the temptation in the wilderness. There he quotes the Psalms against our Lord. Yet the word is still our best defense, just as it was with Jesus. So when the evil one comes around reminding you of all those things that you did or didn't do, answer him, yes, all those sins I committed and more. Yet God's word declares, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans chapter 10. And from our epistle this morning, this is the testimony that God gives us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So be gone, Satan. I am Christ's. Against these enemies, under this supervision of Father and Spirit, we take heart in the supplies that Jesus gives. Holy Father, keep them. Protect them in your name. God's name represents, it presents everything that he is. As Luther says regarding the second petition, God's name is certainly holy in itself. But we pray in this petition that it might be kept holy among us also. God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity. And we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. God's name involves his holiness, his power, his love. Love that sent his son and brought him to this point here in the upper room. Jesus will go from this prayer to the garden and betrayal. From there through the litany of charges by the Jews to the cross. Where he will hang under that charge, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And there he died and they buried him. But on the third day, alleluia, Christ is risen. As Paul will summarize, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You are justified. You are right before God in him. And along with God's name, he supplies his word. I have given them your word, Jesus prays. Paul will describe it as the sword of the spirit in the letter to the Ephesians. By it we are set apart, sanctified in the truth. The Father's word is truth. Name and word and spirit all come together in baptism. You are mine. Righteous in my sight, the Father says, through the merits of my Son. And the word finally brings us full circle, back to the purpose in setting the disciples and us square pegs out into that round world. David Chatreus is a lesser-known giant among the second generation of the Reformers. He was a professor at the University of Rostock. He was also a pupil of Philip Melanchthon, whose willingness to compromise led in part to some of the difficulties after Luther's death. Yet even though he was one of his pupils, and he differed with his teacher, he never spoke a harsh word against him. And it fell to Chatreus to heal some of those wounds, contributing the majority of two of the articles of the formula of Concord. In Article 2, we read these words. Therefore, in his immeasurable goodness and mercy, God provides for the public proclamation of his divine eternal law in the wondrous counsel of our redemption, the holy gospel of his eternal Son, our only Savior, Jesus Christ, which alone can save. By means of this proclamation, he gathers an everlasting church from all mankind. He effects in human hearts true repentance and knowledge of sin and true faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God wants to call 
human beings to eternal salvation, to draw them to himself, to convert them, to give them new birth, and to sanctify them through these means and no other than through his holy word and the sacraments. Close quote. By means of this proclamation, by proclamation, you and I become the voice of square pegs in a round world. So Jesus prays in the upper room. And as we go, recall the prayer that he gave us to use, especially the sixth petition, and lead us not into temptation. In that petition, we ask God to guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame or vice. But it's not all dire warning in this prayer. Far from it. Verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. To achieve that joy, we must cling wholeheartedly to the word and find comfort in the thought that Christ has so solemnly promised to be with us, together with the Father, and to protect us so that no misfortune or harm may befall us. Jesus is leaving the world. And like our earthly parents, he makes provisions for us. The oversight of the Father and the Spirit. Needed supplies, the name of the Father and his word. And instructions, pray. Pray without ceasing, as Paul admonishes the Thessalonians. And Jesus' prayer brings protection of the Father and the Spirit. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.